today's at Fearless Wealth Podcast. Here with us, we have Simon. And this conversation, his story um, is absolutely pregnant with possibilities and life force and cycling back through unconventional life paths that have been taken, um, filled with life lessons, self-awareness, the essence of being. Ah, this was so, so, so good. I'm so grateful for this conversation. So um, get with it today at Fearless Well, here with Simon. Some things that are going on currently with the Meet Me at the Bank brand and what offerings are all out there. Also, if you haven't subscribed, like, shared this podcast, please do so. Also, feel free to rate the podcast. Regardless if it's good or bad, I'm all for it. Um, Now, as you know, my biggest offering is the DOM course and the DOM archetype. Here I go all into, you know, empowerment. Um, There's sex worker aspect of it where I break break down completely what dominatrix work looks like, what fetishes we have, seven and a half hour library of fetishes. Um, Then the dom archetype is setting boundaries, finding your inner voice, practice all these things of strong, strong womanhood as how I would say it. Um, Then we have the blood coats with Jesse Magic, all about magic, wealth, creativity, energetics in combination with your relationship to your body and your cycle. I have the tap-in workshop, how to tap into the energy of growing abundance yourself. Then there's the self-care makes you a millionaire workshop. Then there is all these all these interviews I have out there. So feel free to check them out. Um, oh, and I highly recommend for the simple startings, the four money rituals. Those are a little bit with a magical edge and the gratitude journal for all the magical and non-magical people. I absolutely believe that growth starts with gratitude and I have created a format to make it it more tangible and make it more practical. So let's get into it. Let's go to the episode. It's your opinionated favorite, contour dominatrix friend, money witch, demon whisperer, alleged demon queen, five percenter business bitch, fake witch, apex predator, and I don't know what names I've got anymore. And today at Fearless Wealth, we have a very funny person with us. How do you pronounce it correctly? Is it Simon, Simon? How do you want to be called? Simon. 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 So good to have you with us. <laughs> really awesome to be here thanks for having me in this very precious space we were already talking a little bit pre-recording about your jokes and how you were told back like because i think you're hilarious online um in the facebook facebook atmospheres and um you were told when you were younger that you were not supposed to laugh at your own jokes yeah um I would tell a joke and I would laugh almost to lead the chorus of laughter. And then people would just stare at me blankly. My friends, you know, in high school, you're not really sure who, who are your friends and who are your associates. Everybody's a friend and everybody's an enemy um, or a rival. It was certainly the high school I went to. And uh, I just get these deadpan expressions and people's saying to me, you're so weird. You laugh at your own jokes. 
Why would you not though? Like if if you don't even think the joke is funny, then Well, I mean, let's let's just think for a moment about how many comedies are on TV with canned laughter and hardly any of those jokes are funny. And True. sometimes the canned laughter gets creative where they have this one voice that just bellows louder and sort of snorts a little, you know, just to make it sound authentic, like it didn't come out of a can. And, uh, I mean, if they can laugh that hard and uh, with so much gusto at such crappy, poorly written jokes, then why? Maybe I was in doc, that wasn't my indoctrination. I was like, okay, this is a joke. I'm going to signal that it's funny and you need to laugh along <laughs> by laughing at your own joke. I'm going to signal it's funny. That's a whole a whole good attitude, though. Okay, so while we're in the high school topic, what what kind of kid was 14-year-old Simon? Okay, let's let's hit with the hard. Let's go back to your childhood questions, why don't we? <laughs> <laughs> so, um I'll go, I'll take you a little bit back before 14 just to to set up the the 14-year-old Simon. So, I was diagnosed ADHD back in the 80s before it was cool or uh, widespread. And my mother used to spend, so I live in Durban, South Africa, have most of my life. And my mother used to spend hours and hours on the phone every week to doctors in the UK, excuse me, trying to learn from thought leaders in the space about ADHD and hyperactivity and how to offset that with diet. So she was anti-Ritalin. She was anti-drugs. She fought the system to not have me on drugs. But the trade-off for that was that I would have the squadron of multivitamins and um, tablets that were natural, like brewer's yeast tablets and evening primrose tablets that I'd have to have with my cereal in the morning, my porridge. And my mom, who fortunately doesn't listen to your podcast, is not a great cook. She She's not a foodie. She doesn't have a discerning palate. So food was just fuel. That's all it was there for. So I had this unadventurous food with all these supplements, and that was really to offset my ADHD as opposed to Ritalin. However, because I was rebellious, because I was having all kinds of identity issues, which we can delve into, um, which were related to all kinds of other things that happened before that, um, I used to go to the school tuck shop and buy so the big triggers were like red food colorants and artificial food flavors. And those were the main things that, that triggered me. And I would go to the school tuck shop, the little in-house store for sort of cross-cultural references. And I would buy all of the red sweets and the junk and whatever. And I'd be so sugared up and like uh, short-circuiting in my neural networks that 
all through school. I could never sit still. I could never stay quiet. I could never focus. Like that was my problem. So to go back to your question of what was 14-year-old Simon like, it was just a further down the runway version of that where every report card said, Simon is really intelligent, but he really needs to apply himself. Simon's got so much potential. He could do, and and when I share that with people, they go, oh, didn't all our report cards say that? Um, except my wife. She just, her, her report cards used to be, Nikki's the most amazing pupil we've ever had, and it's such a privilege and a delight to teach her. So I didn't get any of that. I probably would have given my left testicle to have some of that. Um, Especially back then, I didn't really know the value of testicles and, you know, what they were used for. So (laughs) Uh, I came into my own a little late in life. Um, But, uh, yeah, I was constantly arguing with the teachers, interrupting the teachers, mathematics, science. I was very creative. My non – this is what I learned – 10 or 15 years later, maybe even 20 years later, my thinking process is very non-linear. So most of the school education system is linear and we follow this process. And my brain always hops the linear process. It goes, no, no, let me take a guess. And part of my genius in when I'm working with my clients, and I'll talk about that if you want to a little bit later, but part of my genius is that I can come to a non-linear insight uh, conclusion and then systematically reverse engineer how I got to that process. And usually because anything observed is not what it actually is, you know, observing something changes the nature of it. It's what I think is the, the way that I got there, but it's actually just a logical more socially acceptable in the mainstream logical process that I'm reverse engineering so that linear brains can follow, if that makes sense. So, well, yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Because that, that's a, that, that's a, that, that's almost, that's an art, not almost, that's an art and a skill in and of itself to be able to observe non-linear process and transform them into a linear language that still transmutes the message, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Brilliantly articulated. So 14-year-old Simon was spent more, 14-year-old to 16, 17-year-old Simon spent more time outside of the classroom than he spent in the classroom He was constantly being told by teachers and by fellow students that um, he was an attention seeker, which I was. Um, But one of the things that I realize is now my sort of advantage and also my essential fuel for for existence and, and thriving is collaboration. And the school environment doesn't thrive on collaboration. It doesn't welcome collaboration. Everything is competition and isolation and some mix of those two. And so I was always 
wanting to share notes, always wanting to compare and contrast, always wanting to have a dialogue about the thing. And then when it came to writing tests, I was very disorganized. So ADHD didn't, like I was, most of the time I was off on a cloud somewhere. I, I, I couldn't even tell you at the end of the day what really went on because I was not grounded. You know, because I was, I'd, by then I'd abandoned most of the dietary stuff, although my mom was still feeding me food for fuel and all of the supplements, I was shoveling as a teenage boy what I could when I could, and I didn't care about the consequences. And so I was fighting against her remedies. Um, a core part of my identity was I wanted to be like everybody else. And so mm. I would try very hard to be like everybody else. And the more I tried, um, the less successful I was, obviously. And I remember my Afrikaans teacher, Afrikaans is a one of the official languages in South Africa, a lot of history with that language in the school education system, but had this Afrikaans teacher and she only spoke Afrikaans in her class. And, you know, in primary school, I had an, an aptitude for languages, but sort of discarded that by the time I got to high school. And I remember one day she got so angry with me for always interrupting and back chatting that she picked up her very heavy chair and threw it across the, and she wasn't a small woman, but she threw it across the floor so hard that it actually knocked the fr one of the front desks over and knocked two of the kids in those desks. Like there was a two person desk, knocked two of them like off their chairs and onto the floor. Like it was that much force. And that just scarred me and stuck with me that somebody would have that violent reaction to me. And so I remember the next week after being severely disciplined about that, I was going to do, and this wasn't my first time trying this, but I was going to do everything that I could do to be quiet and pay attention. And so I went into the class, I, obviously because I'm more talk than action, I would announce that to her and I'm like, I'm changed, I'm going to behave, I'm going to honor you, I'm going to do this thing because I really wanted to be good and attentive and be a good student. And I, I sat down and felt like a volcano in me, slowly just building up, building up, building up. And I, it felt like, I'm, like I'd been good and quiet for all of nine years, sitting in that chair. <laughs> the first time I'd announced that I was going to be good. And I think in reality, three minutes later, I was like, <laughs> just back to default, you know, like be <laughs> and... So I was dis, I was regarded as disrespectful, dishonoring, um, just all of those things. So that was fourteen year old Simon was into skateboarding and surfing. You know, I gave as I moved on through my teenage years, I gave more and more of my life to that. Um, immersed myself in punk rock, and most of the time did a bit of marijuana, but most of the time. None of that was real for me. I was always doing it because, like, I was up, I was living on these two planes. Like, I would do it and enjoy it, and I could immerse myself in it. 
but I always knew that wasn't who I was and I was playing a role to fit into this social context that, that surrounded me. And, and, I, and I guess I chose the social dynamic that I wanted to immerse myself in and I just played that role. Even though I was a, running these, I was sort of having this constant out-of-body experience where I was observing everything that was going on around me and going, okay, this is not who I am, that's not really funny, but now I laugh. This is, I don't really want to do this stuff, but we do it now because that's what people like us do. You know, like that was a lot of my experience um, as a teenager and into my early 20s. What would you say that high school Simon would have needed to be allowed to thrive optimally, whatever that looks for you or back then? Yeah, so co-creation and collaboration would definitely be a key part of it. So there's, like Ricardo Semler has the Semler School where they'll build a bicycle, as an example, but then they'll mm. integrate the mathematical, scientific, engineering curriculums into that. But you're kind of getting this whole learning, this applicable learning uh, all through the process. I think something like that probably would have worked well for me. When I discovered it, I was already in my mid-20s and I was very intrigued by that. And I actually tried to get a, um, a franchise or, or sort of be involved with the model because I just knew that so many people need something like that. Um, my sister went to a, a different school, which was more self-paced learning. Everybody learns on their own. And it worked for her, but I don't think it would have worked for someone like me because the, there was an ADHD kid there and it, that system seemed to actually aggravate his quote-unquote condition and, and, you know, catalyze certain dynamics more so than, than mine did. Um, so I, I, I think project work collaboration, conversation, and then obviously the, you know, very well-worn topic is this thing of standardized testing. So we give mm. you a standard test. Standardized testing doesn't work for someone or is not optimal for someone who has a non-linear thought process. So, yeah, I think really those three things. Well, and what I hear is it, there's a very deep like fundamental self-awareness, even like when you look back, um, what, what would you say, like, what is your, like, what have you found a method for you that in which you learn best? Is it like a doing in combination of like audio theory? Is it, well, clearly it's not sitting in a classroom and reading and listening and like kind of mimicking the words, what the teacher told you, like what kind what, what were some of the ways that you found that, that worked really well for you? So I only found them much later. Um, dialogue is a very powerful learning methodology for me. I can almost capture that in my mind. Mm. Um, audio is very powerful. One of the things, so so what's interesting, and I haven't really explored it, I'm not a methodical researcher or investigator. I get these 
random occurrences of insights and then I might reinforce them randomly down the line. So I'm not going to pretend that I've systematically studied this out. Um, but what's interesting for my brain is when I hear a song, I will recall a time when I was hearing that song at this specific part of the song, I will have a flashback of exactly where I was when I heard that song. And sometimes it's as dumb and insignificant as rounding the corner on fifth street and the man was walking his dog. So it's like my brain leads with audio as the, the reference point, the lighthouse from which it takes its bearing. And then all the data, the visual and uh, sensory data seems to kind of get filed in those as accompaniments to those audio files, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Like that, that, those are anchored moments, but then like millions of them. Yeah. Do you, um, cause you, you mentioned something like, Hey, it was ADHD back before it was cool. Um, do you still affiliate with the term ADHD right now? Yeah. I, I, I have this sort of superiority arrogance around ADHD because I mean, my mom wrote a book about ADHD before people even knew what, what it was. And it was a small little paperback book, but it was called Rebel Without a Pause. And um, what what's interesting is I, I see adults being diagnosed with it now. There's a really cool podcast. There's a guy called Peter Shankman who calls it neurodiversity. And his tagline is that neurodiversity is a gift, not a curse. And he, his whole thing is around teaching people to unlock the advantage. I have a very linear, very structured architect um, wife who can memorize recipes, cook, was a diligent student. She, she's just like the model answer of what, schools would love to produce, not what they produce, but what they would love to produce. But she's also a divergent thinker and can, you know, suspend her view on something to entertain an alternate view. And as a non-ADHD person, she has been the most gracious, the most um, kind and patient person in supporting me to understand and lean into some of the advantage, not trying to be like everyone else. And what's very interesting is her whole life, she wasn't pressured to be like anyone else. And anyone who tried to conform her to a mold, she would go, no, I'm not buying into that. And so she was secure in her identity. Mm. Whereas I was insecure and constantly seeking affirmation, constantly wanting validation and projecting. So ADHD and insecurity is a volatile, deadly mix. Like if you're secure and you have a nurturing environment that shows you how to unlock the gift of ADHD or neurodiversity, because, you know, we even joke between us, my wife and I, that there's probably some autism in there. There's probably some 
schizophrenia, bipolar, and you know, there's, there's this whole mix of stuff going on. So if you had to tell my mom that Simon was schizophrenic, bipolar, and autistic, she'd get highly offended. Like, like that, mm. that would like puncture her balloon. But I go, yeah, it's pr- now that I'm a lot more secure. I go, it seems likely because what we understand of the brain, and I've studied a little bit of neuroscience and I worked for a company that specialized in neuroscience-based leadership development for a while. What we understand about the brain is so infinitesimal and in compared to the reality of what's going on, just like life in the universe in general, that our labels are such a narrow linear conceptualization of something that's so multifaceted and so multidimensional that to answer your question, I feel like the term ADHD is kind of the neutered media friendly term to help distracted, disorganized and uh, dysfunctional in the terms of what society is expecting us to operate in, help those people feel like they've got a label that they can identify with and can draw their references from, find their bearings from, and basically shape and mold their identity around. But I think it's just neurodiversity, which we all have, but some of us are just, you know, further to one side on the spectrum. Yes. Yes to all that. And um, I always make the joke online, like, do you have a mental disorder or have you been like eating donuts as breakfast? Because like, right, like there's all these components and you mentioned, um, you know, growing up with uh, food as fuel, how much like, first of all, what's your relationship with food now? And how much have you been experimenting with it impacting your mental state and like clarity and ability to operate in a way that seems fit for you? Yeah. So great questions. Uh, my wife and I are self-proclaimed foodies. So we love food for flavor, not food for fuel. And gotcha. we, I mean, if you just, see some of my recent Facebook posts, I was bragging about like cheesecake with um, lemon meringue, uh, Italian meringue topping drizzled in white chocolate and all of these things. Like, so I can binge on, so firstly, let me just say I'm not the epitome of health or health consciousness, or I've got some some kind genetics that I can uh, offset the abundance of sugar that I put into my body. I will always choose sweet over savory. Um, But I think in terms of, so my brain definitely demands more glucose for my thinking process than most other people. So the prefrontal cortex usually only has four hours of problem-solving ability. I can sugar my brain up and do eight hours. Mm. And even 
coaching sessions, which are really demanding experiences for the average person, I can do two, three, four hour coaching sessions and just keep going. I'll be shattered at the end of it and I'll mm-hmm. crash. But I can definitely um, run on sugar. But here's the difference. When I eat healthily and I don't do an abundance of sugar, where I have a balanced diet with all the good stuff, I am my pulse rate is lower, my energy is more grounded. Mm. And my emotional intelligence is higher. Like my fuse is longer and I'm, I can put on the ventrilateral braking system of the brain to go, wait, pause, think, okay, now engage, as opposed to just plunge in. And um, so today was a snacky I've just had a really good healthy meal we always eat a very healthy dinner but um, it was a snacky kind of day two cups of coffee I don't normally have more than that I'll sometimes have two cups of coffee with two sugars and a cup of tea with two sugars and a biscuit or a piece of cake or something and I can feel now that like I'm more like Bruce Lee whippersnapper in my responses and answers and how I'm processing as opposed to like slow, meditative, thoughtful processes. That's the difference. I hear you. I hear you. So um, you before, because we're going to jump into like, what does current Simon look like, live like, and what, what all you do. Um, but one thing you mentioned is that, you know, when you have your coaching clients and like you stretch them to the max, it's very taxing, right? Um, one of the topics we always talk about is self-care. So like, what is your like undeniable, non-negotiable things that you have to do for yourself in order to be able to balance uh, or regulate from these ta- taxing things? So it's, it's, can, it, it, it never used to be this, but it, it's, connection with my family so working from home and my wife is at home and you know kids come home early afternoon I used to be frustrated by that and you know being in close proximity and now I realize it keeps me grounded so just in terms of look I can still be a dick but the connection with others definitely that's not a self-care thing. That's more of a regulation thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But self-care is for me as simple as just putting on a podcast, scribbling some notes, cranking up the music with earphones and immersing myself in music. And that's, that's a like a deep neural recalibration for me. And it can happen in 30 minutes or it can happen in five minutes, depending on the song choice. Would you say you're a um, do? You, is there a peak of the day that you perform? I'm using air quotes here. Um, like better? Are you like a morning person, evening person? Like does it not matter at all? Or it definitely matters. So, what's interesting is before I was married with kids, I would go to bed very early, so 
If you tried to drag me out after 10, I was just catatonic. I was, I was a waste. My my spirit was somewhere else. My body was just along for the ride. Um, When you adapt to family life and other people's patterns and everybody's been working. So we stay up later to connect, usually just quote unquote connect. We're really vegging in front of the TV. Um, If I go to bed late, I then wake up later and more tired. If I go to bed early with the intention of waking up early, what I can do between 3.30 a.m. and 6 a.m. far surpasses what I can do between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. So there's really, yeah, there's, again, there's this deep knowledge of self. And anything that I try and attempt to do after 2 p.m., especially in the creative space, if I'm trying to edit copy or, you know, do some sort of strategic uh, thought process, it, strategy's okay, spreadsheets, um, any kind of administrative task which is required, I'm, I'm just terrible at it. Like, it'll mm-hmm. take me an hour to produce an invoice. It's just that bad. So... And a lot of thought and attention and energy to produce that invoice in an hour. Um, and so, like, currently I'm working on a collaborative team with people based in the U.S. I'm based uh, Central Africa time. They get started and have their meetings at 7 p.m. my time. And then they go, okay, well, can we implement those changes? I know it's getting late on your side of the world. Could you just implement those changes now? Um, and then and then we're good to go. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to do it because you asked. And under that sort of pressure where I know somebody's waiting for something, I can produce and perform, but it's not my best work. So It's like your favorite. Yeah, there's a lot of it's, – it's just – it's like you're putting on clown shoes to run the 100 meters sprint, you know. It's just mm-hmm. you'll get there, but there's a lot of like compensation happening down the track. Not optimal. So now, now you can tell us about what you currently do. Like, what what's the current Simon like? What is your life like? What do you do for a living, etc.? Okay, so let me preface that by saying that I didn't go to university or college and do the traditional study thing, which in a, in an American context is just weird. Like, how did you not do that? Um, I wanted to prove myself. So I just dived straight into the working world. I am now 40, turning 44 in August. And I have had somewhere in the region. I mean, I've done the math a few times, but I, I keep forgetting and new things keep popping up. But if you count all the businesses that I've started and all of the partnerships that I've had in other people's companies and all of the jobs, I've probably had around 25 or 26 jobs in my 22 years of working. So that has included everything from working in heavy haulage, trucking and transport, um, working in tourism, being a yacht skipper, 
um, having an events company, being in leadership development, coaching, management consulting, uh, working for an advertising agency, all selling all kinds of things from industrial cleaning chemicals to stock trading software. And most recently, I've been navigating the avenues of marketing, digital marketing, copywriting. And so as it is now, I am a 50% partner in a company called Marketing That Rocks. We do sales funnels as a done-for-you service if you can pay us enough to do that. Most of the time, we don't want to do that. But I developed a Rockstar copy method. So Rockstar is an acronym. I developed a Rockstar copy method for sales pages, for funnels and video scripts and emails. And I'm doubling down on honing that and productizing it to be the proverbial passive income product with upsells of done with you and done for you coaching. Two expressions of that are sales pages on the one hand where people are wanting to clearly communicate their value offering and a close companion to that is B2B proposals. So a lot of coaches and consultants have done this uh, teaching individuals, consumers, certain things, especially the witchy uh, woo-woo community of coaches. They they got this thing, but they want to now leverage maximize, leverage the corporate space and selling to companies to maximize revenue and value, but they don't quite know how to translate their value and package it in a way that resonates with B2B buyers. And so that's something I've just had a ton of experience with. I've worked in you know, big five consulting companies as a client, as a collaborator, as a um, service provider. So I know how to package that stuff up. So really the confluence of all my life experience probably sits in those two products. Um, and I am busy flirting, not flirting, we're... we're in a passionate love affair already. The clothes are already off. Um, but I'm having, I'm in a partnership with someone where we're launching a management consultant company for high growth, uh, fast growth companies, where we take the hackathon concept, which is really outcomes in a super compressed time, like 24 hours or 48 hours. And we basically evolve their systems and processes um, in the organization in like supersonic speed time through a very cool vibey event. So that is what I'm giving my life force to professionally at the moment. And I'm ready for the next question. <laughs> this also like, that sounds the, the fast scaling companies or the high paced that sounds perfect for your brain because yeah. your brain operates like so fast, like the German Audubon, I always call it. Yeah. Right. So it's like, shik, 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 shik. okay, I love that. Okay, so let me tell you a cool story. Cause I used to, yes. One of the things I didn't say that I used to do was innovation consulting. And I developed this brand called the innovation coach. I came up with this. I took 
the very complex, and this is one of the things that I do pretty well. Um, I took the very complex theories of innovation that were really packaged in the university and you know Fortune 100 space, and I broke it down to something very simple that the average business owner, the small to medium business, could understand and implement. And I called it uh, the reinvention roadmap, and there were five phases, and I ran this metaphor of three stops. So it was um, review, uh, reconnaissance, and then restructure, like for each section. And I had a couple of clients, did really well. But then I got invited to Dubai to run a digital transformation workshop. And co-facilitated with a Dutch facilitator. And we spent two weeks paid building out this fancy uh, curriculum, four-day workshop curriculum for these high-level government officials in in United Arab Emirates. It wasn't actually Dubai. It was Sharjah, which is the sister city to Dubai, one of the sister cities. And... So we had these 52 government officials in the room, everything. It's like $5,000 a seat back in like 2018 and 5,000 pounds a seat, sorry. And we've got all these people crammed into this big room. We're teaching the curriculum and on day, around about lunchtime on day one, these people come up to us and they're like, we've done all this stuff before. What you're teaching us, we've already done. We want this stuff. And they point to the brochure like, page three, it was like a five-page glossy brochure, and there was like this small little reference to uh, like all the buzzwords of innovation at the time, like digital transformation and uh, 4D printing and like all these like silly things. And they're like, this is the stuff we're here for. This is what we want. Now, we had this entire curriculum, which was based on the slow-bake approach of leading them through a process, putting them in groups. And we so we just ignored the feedback for the rest of the first day. And at the end of the first day, they came to us and they said, the, the coordinators came and said, look, you need to do something about this. In my non-regulated snacking on chocolates kind of thing. I got emotional and I pushed back and I'm like, you can't expect us to recreate an entire program overnight. And um, essentially what we did is I, my closing statement to that, once my cortisol levels had subsided and I like, regulated a little in the middle of this meeting, I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do for you. We're going to create what they want. We're going to make it up and it's going to be completely different to what you thought you were going to buy. And not only that, we're going to reverse engineer a process that makes them think that what they were doing was all what we did was always where we were going. We just needed to lay those foundations. So we're going to tie what we have done to what we're going to do together. And I don't know what that's going to look like. But we'll figure it out. So at dinner that night, my nonlinear brain goes, okay, this is what it's going to look like. And I drew, draw this funny diagram and I'm no artist, not by any stretch of the imagination. And the next day after, after like working till three in the morning, we basically assembled a sequence of YouTube videos with conversational dialogue and three more days still to go. 
whenever my partner got stuck, because he's a linear thinker and we're following the curriculum, we'd have these big spaces where it gets stuck and he'd just give me the microphone and go, okay, we're stuck now, do your thing. And I'd just grab the microphone and I'd riff and we'd have conversations. And at the end, these very, very leaders of governmental departments in United Arab Emirates came up to us and said, that's what we paid for. That we The brochure sold it as amazing, but that was the most amazing thing that we've ever experienced in a workshop. And we've obviously been to tons of workshops. They've all got multiple degrees and all of the things, and they work for you know, they're clients of an organization that's throwing out workshops all the time. And so that was my first, and there's a point to that whole story, that was my first time that value, the perception of value, is not based on linear sequence necessarily. It's, it often is. It needs to be engineering, you know, building an aeroplane, taking off in an aeroplane, landing in an aeroplane, getting your baggage. All of those things need to happen in a linear sequence. So there's definitely value within linear sequences, but the value that people that the value that I can bring into the world and many people like me and many of my clients is not based on where you come from, where you're at now and where you see yourself going and the sequential flow from one to the other. It's about meeting people where they're at in the moment can be the most significant value. Now I figured this out or caught a glimpse of it for the first time in 2018. And before, during, and after that time, people have been paying $25,000 for coaching programs just to get access in the room, to be with the people, to feel the feelings, to have the thoughts, to validate the stories, to shift the stories, all of those things. But I think my quote-unquote big contribution to the world, whether it will be in the context of a book or a course or just a TED talk, um, whatever comes after TED will probably be a better format for me, um, will be this thing of value hacking. So what I do with my copy clients, copy coaching clients, my marketing clients, and what we're looking to do with these clients in the consulting space is really hack value in a way that you are doing your best work in the world and getting the best reward emotionally, spiritually, physically, mentally, and financially for your value packaging. And I packed a lot. I love it. I love it. What, um, What's your current relationship to work or to the term? Or like, what does it even mean for you? So it's in constant evolution. Um, a, a recent, as in one year, 18 month type realization is that I'm definitely about the process. Not so much the, the sequence process as we would understand process the steps but in that if i am not fulfilled happy and emotionally engaged in my work 
It's we can't do it. It's just my brain will not let me go there. Um, mm-hmm. And so people are like, don't worry about. You just got to do the hard things. And I and I like I'm well versed in your podcasts. I know that there is a place for doing the hard things, and I still have to do the hard things. So I'm not dismissing the hard things. But if I'm not emotionally invested in the hard things and I don't have a story of belief that I conjured up that wasn't handed to me, it's with my own manufacturing and I believe in it and I'm sold on it and I'm going to do it even though it's hard. And this is very important, that I believe it's within my skill set. So me doing Mm -hmm. the hard things that are outside of my gifting, skill set, innate talents – is a waste of my time. There are other people who are far better at that that should be doing it. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that has stopped me from doing that in the past has been money. So so the only reason I did shit work that I hated was because of my money stories. And when I could shift my money stories, which I'm still shifting, Mm -hmm. then I was allowed to play in this in the space of my gifting but it was this convergence of three or four things and i say four because an extra one might pop up when i have three in mind but it's identity and and knowing who you are and being confident and secure in who you are that's the one thing value creation so is the work that i'm doing just ticking a box like you want to kill me just put me in a bureaucratic space where the work that I do doesn't really matter. It's just ticking a box. I die. Like, and I throw my toys while I'm dying. <laughs> so that's, that's the second thing is this thing of, is it really value? So I have this value of transformation. If the work that I'm doing is not transformative or doesn't move someone from a pain to a desired gain or shift something from, from less better to better, 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 then, then I don't, like, I struggle to engage with that. And then a third thing is this thing of being in flow. The, and I know being in flow is often a story, but it's this thing of am I toiling and laboring and grinding? Is the amount of effort that I'm putting in proportionate to the results that it's going to produce. So there's that whole mix of stuff that comes into my work. And then layering the school stories in, if I'm doing it in a silo, if I'm doing it where, no, you go do it, then come back to us. Like there's a project I'm working on now where it was sold to me as a collaborative event. But the collaboration is maybe 5% of the total project and the rest is you go do it and come back. Mm-hmm. That is just for me. It, it gets hard and laborious um, and unfulfilling, and then I'm putting in a lot of effort and really incrementally moving the needle. So I think to sum up my answer with the what is the relationship to work? If I can, so I know I get to choose my clients and I get to choose the dynamics. If I mindfully choose the clients and affirm or assert the dynamics that are most favorable and put the price that is energizing for me within that, 
I'll do amazing work. And I will probably give my customer more credit for being amazing than they actually are. Does that answer I the hear question? You. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and in, in reference to, you know, my very Slavic, you know, you got to do the hard thing. Um, I absolutely personally believe that doing the hard thing has to be in alignment by lack of better terms to who you are. Like if, and I, I, I use the, the workout example, like try I I've done the marathon. I had a phase where I was doing marathons absolutely against like the build of my body. Now I'm boxing. Now that's my jam people. Right. So the hard thing might be even like figuring out what your best version of the hard thing, which is like getting a sweat looks like. Yeah, that's um, that's beautiful. I love that. That is the hard. So I I would par- paraphrase that by saying, the hardest work is figuring out what your best hard work is. Absolutely, absolutely. And even the hard work might be instead of disassociating and binge watching Netflix, it's sitting with yourself and like going through all these like very annoying like self layers. Like that's very fucking hard. Yeah. No, absolutely agreed. So you mentioned money story though. What 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 was the money what would you say the money story was upon growing up? Whether it's externally like like concretely said this is what money looks like or what you picked up versus what has your money current money story morphed into? So firstly, my so my mom divorced my biological dad early on. So I, I don't know him. I don't have any reference to that. So she we she was a single mom, working, penny pinching. But I had affluent relatives. And those affluent relatives, aunts and uncles, I would go and stay with them on the holidays or I'd go stay with my grandparents and the life the sort of inner city kid life would be replaced with this out in the country, living on the farm, going fishing or by the seaside. And my experience of money there, there would be an abundance there. They would have seven types of cereal on the table for breakfast. And I would have every single one of them where, because like, I don't know when I'm going to get this again, the very, um, orphan spirit kind of vibe. And we'd do really cool things. They'd have a tennis court at their house and would swim and all of those amazing things. And then I'd go back to my quote-unquote real life and we'd go back to struggle. So I would – so that identity, that thing of wanting to be somebody else, I was going, mm. but these people are my family. Why can't I live with them? Why can't I be them, you know? And then they went mm-hmm. to private schools and I went to public school. And I was like, no, but I want to go to the same school that they go to. You know, we're tight-knit. We're, I had cousins my age. We were literally, they were twins. Um, they are twins. And then I was two months younger than them. So, like, we were the same, you know, except they were completely different. So mm-hmm. growing, and then my mom remarried. And she remarried a guy younger than her 
who who was and obviously he very graciously not obviously but he very graciously adopted me and he he was a very build it yourself scrimp and save very frugal but moving up in the world and now he's the ceo of a you know a engineering consulting company and he's got all of the stuff but he would like have to scrimp and save for stuff. I was very ungrateful. I didn't see that. I was like, why do I have this bike, which he would have been very proud to buy me instead of one of those cool bikes? Why do I have mm. these shoes instead of at the time, you know, my, the friends at school were wearing LA gear. And I was like, well, why must I have North star when they're wearing LA gear? You know, and then, now LA gears imploded and North star is cool. But that was my, my money narrative was scrimp, save, struggle. And so I would lie about what I had and what um, we had. And then I'd get found out. And so I was branded a liar because I was constantly lying about who I was, what we had, because I saw money as this validation. Being cool and having money were inextricably linked as a team. Gotcha. And always hung out with people more affluent than me and was always perplexed by how easy they seemed to buy the coolest stuff, get access. You know, I'd have to save up for two years to buy a new surfboard and I was never good at saving. When I had money, I'd just burn it because like dopamine rush, Let's, we can spend now. And so I had no grid, no even into my adulthood, just very bad at saving, managing, you know, whether it's ADHD, whatever it is, it was just very bad money relationship. Now the shift has been, and we've struggled for a long time, you know, starting from zero, trying to get this thing off the ground. If it doesn't work, you go back to below zero. So you're constantly starting on a lower baseline, you know, and going two steps back then trying to start something, bootstrap it. Um, here, getting access to finances is, to credit is not as easy as in the US where you can be unemployed and go get a credit card. Um, here, you've got to have had a job for three months and show your, in your salary slips. And then that'll determine how much credit you can get and it's a small percentage of your your and your monthly salary. So just very used to scraping on the bread line, not having enough, being a dollar late, a dollar short and a day late. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Short ten days late. You know, so that that has been a lot of the narrative growing up. And then when I made a decision to shift to and with that thought that hard work was the path to success so i worked longer and harder than anyone else around me in every job and then i was perplexed baffled frustrated and highly annoyed that people who didn't work as hard as me had so much more than me and so the then it was well, the whole system is unfair. And I was looking for sweat, return on sweat equity or return on 
profuse sweating. You know, I thought that was my, I don't know if I thought I was going to swim my way to success on my own sweat, but that, that was the story. And now my relationship to money and work, I'm still on the upward trajectory, but now my relationship is I get to choose what project I want to work on today. I communicate that to the client. Sometimes I goof off and I don't do what I'm supposed to do. And then I catch up tomorrow by like waking up early and just doing the burst. And I actually find that putting myself closer to the deadline produces more energy in me. Um, But I am now just going, I fully believe that I can pick a number to charge and I can charge it, there is definitely some trust that needs to be built up proportionate to that, whether that is writing a sales page and communicating the value or just having a relationship with people over time. Length of time equals higher trust accounts or more padded trust accounts. But... I'm in this sort of swing space now. Like the, I'm swinging on the hinge mechanism, probably just past halfway into a space of where I believe can see the path. And it's just a matter of going through the motions where I go, okay, I'm on my way to making my first million dollars. And I can see an exit strategy to getting $10 million. Whereas... I would come up with these ideas or dreams, delusions, not even dreams, of, okay, I want to do this. And then I'd try to sequentially reverse engineer the way to get there. But there was no demand for that product. There was no credibility. The offer was too small because the fundamental thing was I was going to charge a little bit and work fucking hard. Mm. And and when you get to like your mid-30s, you don't have the energy that you had in your 20s. So working fucking hard is you waking up at five and being exhausted at five. You know, like a 12-hour day, you shattered. And then I'd have the next day hangover and go, oh, man, I'd start at nine and finish at three or whatever and just go, ah, okay, got to recharge for the next day. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, like pick that apart. There's a whole bunch in there. Beautiful. What um you 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 mentioned that you know being cool and money were were like intertwined and connected. What would current Simon describe as wealth? So I've had enough time and exposure across lots of industries to see affluent people unhappy messed up relationships, mangled, distorted souls, um, spiritual decay, and a deep sense of unfulfillment and unhappiness in the midst of having all of the trinkets and the stuff. And the further down, they like, I almost feel like there's grace up to a certain point to venture off that path. I don't know 
I don't, I think it's different per, per person, but being a, and, and I, I loved your thoughts recently on what we think is capitalism is not actually capitalism. So let's just call it capitalism by the definition of, you know, Americans, American labels of capitalism. Um, that, hyper-capitalistic path of put your life on hold, make as much money as you can, and then live a good life and, and get the gold watch and the retirement equivalent for 2022, you know, that kind of buy the house, travel the world, that retirement mentality. I think there is some sort of universal grace which is different to each person, to get off that path and find some expression. These are all thoughts and narratives and stories that you get to shape and mold and concoct and that the universe will endorse if you believe it as truth. It's just my opinion. As long as it's reproducing good and value in the world and it's moving to light rather than to darkness – Lots to tap into there. Um, but I almost feel like the I, – I have this saying. It's a favorite saying. The difference between a rut, a groove, and a grave is the depth. And the further you go down that path and the deeper you entrench yourself in it, the harder it becomes to shift. And I think – Part of the advantage of me having 25 jobs in what you might call a career, although it's many P's in many pods of careers, is that I was I never did myself the disservice of going too deep into a groove that it started heading into a grave. And so I was able mm. to adapt and switch and change and pivot more times in my life than I've, I even had a close friend when I put that out on social media and said, I've had 25 jobs in 22 years or whatever. A recruitment friend of mine who was very close to me at one time just went, mathematically, that's impossible. It, it, you can't do that. It doesn't, there's, you just wrote the biggest bunch of garbage. I think she actually said that. There's, that's not possible. You can't do that. You can't have 25 jobs in 22 years it, it doesn't stack up um and that thinking where she's been in in recruitment for 10 years 15 years she moved to an entirely different country and her fallback was to start a recruitment agency like that that's mm -hmm. what she could do and now her landscape is completely different there's entirely different opportunities her social constructs are completely different but she's gone back to what she knows. And so if it's that difficult in the context of a career to change, how much more difficult is it where you've molded your soul, your spirit, your identity, your purpose, all of those things around maximizing financial gain coupled with the scarcity mentality, which capitalism, no, that American branded capitalism 
fosters where in order for me to have, she can't have. Or if he has, I can't have it. And so mm. that particular narrative of capitalism definitely says that for the haves to have, there must be a whole lot of have-nots who have not. And so Lies. I think that my current relationship to work is about being and I'm moving into that. So I, my being creates value and that's what I would probably talk or write a book about. And it's finding the, the structures, the, the flows that facilitate my optimal beingness to create value, which I think is how most wealthy, super rich people got super rich, is because they knew how to be themselves rather than doing all the work in trying to produce value. And they have, because so many of the have-nots, and part of what they have not was the understanding of being and wealth creation and opportunities and access and possibilities. So the have-nots contracted to work really hard doing to produce the value for the haves who were merely producing value by being. I didn't know we were going to church, but this took it home. Well done. We needed to to just put a nugget of of value in here before we. This is beautiful. Well said. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, that was so rich. That was pregnant with life opportunity. Really well done. (laughs) Thanks. Just making it up as I go along. Because you you do the being, you are the being. You're doing you, you win at the being. There we go. Oh, that's so good. Okay, let me. I have two closing questions. Um, first, if current Simon could travel back to ten year old Simon, and you know, assuming that you know ten year old Simon would recognize it's you from the future, we don't have the complex questions. What would you tell him? I've pondered this a lot. And I think, honestly, that 10-year-old Simon, being the actual 10-year-old Simon who was 10-year-old Simon, would be momentarily inspired and motivated and would nod and go, okay, and would make some commitments and go, okay, based on what you're telling me, I'm going to do that. And then they'd completely forget it and, and run off on a tangent and, and lack mindfulness. So knowing that, <laughs> I would go, buddy, trust your mom on cutting down on the sugar and practice breathing. Mm. Like life is going to be good if you just cut down on the sugar and you practice breathing. There we go. And then following that up with 
future Simon, 20 years from now, travels back to you today. Yeah. What is he telling you? Yo, you're going to make me call myself out here. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> well, you'd go, dude. I wrote an entire audio book for you. Here it is. <laughs> it's seven hours. Um, it it would be. It would probably be two things. It would probably be. I've got so many neurons firing right now and there's so many different, I'm like Dr. Strange, like the million scenarios, like, no, no, not that one. No, no, not that one. <laughs> it would, it would probably be the wise 20 year old Simon would come to me and go, dude, you know that any advice I give you, you're going to try and make it work and you're going to fuck it up. So what I'm going to tell you is where you are now is better than where you were and where you're going to be 20 years from now is so much better than when you are, where you are. Just keep going. Oh, beautiful. Oh, I love that. Oh, that's so good. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Um, any closing things, tell us where we can find you. I will put everything in the description and all the notes and everything, of course, but anything that we need to be reminded of, anything that you have coming up, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So I don't, uh, the beingness was good. Thank you for this. Like, thank you for allowing me to be my, my all over the place self. I always enviously, listen to these sequential, very thoughtful, learned, um, I think I broke up for a sec there. Yeah, you broke up for a second. Okay, so I, I always watch these or listen to these other podcast guests at how structured and sequential they are, and I go, oh, man. And then when they uh, – I'm just envious of how – beautifully clear and linear their, their presentation is. So thank you for allowing me to be not that and, and for it to be acceptable. Um, I don't, in as an extension of that, I don't want to now go, okay, go to this place and these are the things and this is what I'm doing. I really wanted to come here with no sales promotion PR agendas. Um, this time has just been beautiful to connect. So if people want to, I'm weird and wacky on Facebook. Um, but uh, if you want to meaningfully connect with somebody on Facebook and you want to lean in to a rand, connecting with a random stranger, I'm probably the guy to do it with. Some of my deepest, most meaningful relationships that I have with humans, I've never met them in real life. I've had a couple of Zoom calls with them at best, but for the most part, we just engage in the chat, a few voice exchanges on Facebook, and I consider some of those people closer friends than 
people I've known my whole lives and have walked long roads with me. So if you're looking for random, unscripted, break-the-mold relationships that will help you reinvent yourself and, and kind of take a divergent perspective on your life and give you crazy feedback, crazy feedback, just different feedback, then connect with me on Facebook. It is, I think there's a 90 in it. It's Simon Kozlowski 90 is like the actual thing, but there's like this blue rock star icon in the Facebook pro in the profile pic. If you reach out to me and you're not trying to sell crypto or um, some sort of sales system, I'll gladly connect with you. That would, it would be a privilege to connect with anyone and everyone. Absolutely. Yeah. And you ask the good questions. I like the questions you ask As, aside from being extremely funny you also always like post these good questions and angles that I'm like, oh, I never thought of that. That's really good. Oh yeah, okay, okay, yeah. Well, I yeah, well done. Because when I put the deep, thoughtful stuff out, my my engagement is like crickets and tumbleweed. So I um I post the funny stuff just to boost the algorithm, and then I try and throw down the thoughtful stuff that people will actually engage. Yeah, and you know, more people read it and think about it. It's just that. The, the deeper stuff requires actual thinking and sitting with and probably even like landing in the body where like it, it becomes this seat for several days, if not weeks, yeah, instead yeah. of like being able to directly respond to a Facebook post. Well done. Um, yeah. I'll put everything in the links and descriptions. So thank you for being here at Fearless Wealth. This was amazing. And, um, thank you, Barra. Epic, epic. And thank you and for I'll your you amazing contribution to the world. The, the liberty of thought constructs the the breaking down of all of the garbage that that we've surrounded ourselves with. You you really do shine brightly in the world, and and you have a powerful powerful contribution to make to society, which you make in in bucket loads. So thank you. You're gonna make me cry. <laughs> I, I deeply deeply value your work. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, now I'm going to cry, so I'm going to turn off the recording. <laughs> See you on the other side. See you on the other side.